All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, we're doing something different today. What are we doing? We are, well, I'm doing something different today first that I just want to point out, which is I'm using my phone to record with my earbuds. So I feel footloose and fancy free. I could pace around while we're recording. I don't know if I'm going to be able to go back to uh, a fancy uh, microphone uh, setup. I was actually wondering, I mean, you know, you call yourself a podcaster and then you get caught without your microphone and headphones. And I'm just thinking, I know Raz isn't happy about that. I mean, come on. What what kind of podcaster doesn't carry their microphone and headphones with them everywhere they go? I know. I Now I know I need an extra microphone with me at all times. That'd be very consistent with my personality. I just need to have a microphone with me always. Um, (laughs) So I will make that change. But the other thing that we're doing different today is we're doing a little intro for one of our favorite episodes that we recorded way back. It was episode 34 originally. Pre-COVID. So it's we're going to hear our innocent selves before everything happened with COVID. Hear how Uh, different we sounded. How different we sounded, how young, how innocent. And um, I was telling you before we started recording that it's funny because one of the things that you say early on is that you were thrown off because you had to record at home because they were doing some work in the Savannah office. And it just, it was just so funny that since that time you had to record at home forever. Not, not only that, but not only that, but that was back in the days when we had this new technology that nobody ever heard of called zoom that we were (laughs) like, wow, check this out. We can all get on here and conference together. (laughs) New, New total new technology. That's true. I forget that a lot of my familiarity, most of my familiarity with Zoom came from actually doing the podcast. So now we never have somebody who's who's unfamiliar with Zoom on the show anymore. I know. I know. Exactly. Yeah. So we are doing a classic episode, one of our favorite episodes. And we're doing this because, uh, uh, frankly, because we just put out too much content. I mean, too many shows. I get uh, hundreds and hundreds of complaints about how much content that nobody can keep up with our podcast. Uh, so, we do. Uh, <laughs> no, that has never do. happened. I, I, I've never gotten a single complaint. I've, nobody's ever told me that we have too much content on our show. So, uh, uh, Well, I, I have gotten people who've been impressed by the fact that we usually do one new episode a week and how many episodes we're up to now. But it's tough. But all that to say, we've got our day jobs. So we put up new content when we can. And when people's our guest schedules allow, but they have day jobs too. So it gets tough. Yeah. So uh, this is a classic episode featuring Rachel Lanier of the Lanier Law Firm. She's based out of their New York office, but I think pretty much most people who've heard this podcast are familiar with who the Lanier Law Firm is, who Mark Lanier is, and he's had just tremendous verdicts. This is the episode involving the case of Gail Lucille Ingheim versus Johnson & Johnson, which it was a number of cases, I think 22 or 23 women against Johnson Johnson for talcum powder litigation and for the amount of asbestos that's in talcum powder causing ovarian cancer. And it resulted in a $4.69 billion verdict. We love all of our guests. We love all of the tips they give. But I mean, I think, you know, uh, everybody recognizes that over the past few years, Mark Lanier has just uh, been knocking it out of the park. And Rachel Lanier has been knocking it out of the park. And, and so this is a great podcast to hear about some of their tips and strategies on how they try cases. Yeah. I mean, if, if you've stuck with us this long through the intro and you're still on the fence about whether to actually listen to the classic episode or re-listen to the episode, 
you should definitely do it. I, I re-listened to it before recording this intro to kind of refresh myself. And Rachel is such a great guest. She has such a podcast voice. Um, but she also is just like an encyclopedia when it comes to these towel cases and specifically what Johnson & Johnson knew and the testing that they were doing. And a lot of the information that we talk about on this episode is different from what you may have heard in the press, um, in the press particularly about talc cases. So if you knew kind of, if you thought you knew what the talc cases were about, you might be wrong. So you should check it out. So we hope everybody enjoys this classic episode of Rachel Lanier, and we will be back next week, hopefully. Probably. With a most Maybe. likely. So we hope to see everybody live or not see, we don't see anybody. Uh, talk to everybody live uh, next week. But uh, yeah. but enjoy this classic episode. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Don't believe every single thing that you read until you really have time to look into it. Because, you know, even if something is a published study in a scientific journal, chances are it was funded by some company somewhere for some purpose. So I kind of want the American public to become a little more skeptical of everything, including the information they receive. Please rise. Court is now in session. This is the Great Trials Podcast. And uh, as always, this is your host, Steve Lowry, with uh, the fantastic Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. <laughs> even though even though Raz does a great job of counting us down, I sort of screwed up that uh, that introduction, but, uh, but we'll just let it go. <laughs> I liked it. It was like you forgot where you were for a second and what <laughs> yeah. you were doing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Wait, we should mention that Raz is in his brand new studio with its uh, that nobody can see on the podcast, but maybe we'll put some pictures up on the website and it shows uh, he's got a cool looking studio. Yeah. yeah. We can do that. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Yvonne, uh, I am a, I'm a little discombobulated today because I'm in my house with sort of notes spread everywhere because they're putting an air conditioner in our office in Savannah. So there's lots of banging. Uh, so, um, but, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I always am recording from, well, I record from my house a lot and then from the office a lot. So you'll you'll adapt and also recording from the Atlanta office a lot where they've been doing construction for like two years. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that office is under constant construction. Yeah. Um, well, uh, so our guest today, Yvonne is uh, a fantastic lawyer. Um, we have Rachel Lanier from the Lanier law firm on with us today. Uh, Rachel uh, practices with her father, uh, the, the great Mark Lanier. Uh, Rachel's in the New York office of the Lanier law firm. They also have offices in Houston, Los Angeles, and Oklahoma City. And if you want to look up Rachel, you can find her at Lanier, that's L-A-N-I-E-R, lawfirm.com. And uh, Rachel, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fantastic. Thank you for having me. How are you? Great, great. Thank you so much for coming on with us. I'm excited. Well, uh, Rachel, this is the part where I get to do a little bragging on you. Um, so uh, Rachel has been uh, practicing uh, with her uh, with her father and in their in their law firm since 2016. Uh, when she was at St. John's University School of Law, she got the Dean's Award for Excellent Service. 
she's also been named a uh, rising star with the Super Lawyers, has been uh, named a 40 under 40 with the National Trial Lawyers, uh, and has just worked on uh, some fantastic cases. And I uh, hope all of our listeners know uh, some of the landmark verdicts that the Lanier Law Firm has uh, been behind uh, uh, since they've uh, been in practice since 1990. But some of those include a uh, verdict against uh, Depew Orthopedics of $247 million uh, from their hip implants uh, against Takeda uh, Pharmaceutical for Actos, which was a $9 billion verdict, and um, a verdict involving Vioxx, which was a $258 million verdict. And uh, and we're here uh, today just to talk about your uh, minimal success <laughs> in the uh, tout cases uh, that you tried against Johnson & Johnson last year, which was on behalf of 22 plaintiffs and resulted in $4.69 billion verdict. So uh, congratulations on just squeaking that one through. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, minimal effort, minimal success. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, this is sort of, uh, you know, the, the talc uh, cases have been ha- have been uh, receiving a lot of national attention. There's been several of these cases tried uh, and they have um, and I know there's been one or two defense verdicts, but by and large, I think they've been mostly plaintiffs verdicts and they've been uh, significant verdicts. Uh, and then I know that there's a lot of uh, a lot of fight over uh, jurisdictional type things. And I know Johnson Johnson doesn't like being in St. Louis and and other places like that. Um, but, uh, but congratulations. This is a, just a fascinating case, Rachel. Thank you. It was, it was absolutely fascinating to work on. And, and yes, it's definitely the, the talc litigation is now being kind of analogized to the tobacco litigation early days, especially, and then also early days of asbestos litigation, not only because there's some talc and asbestos crossover, but also just because of the defense strategies at play and because of how hard fought these battles are. I mean, when you're going up against Johnson Johnson, you can pretty much know that that they are going to fight tooth and nail and they have the resources to do so. So it's, it's tough, but it's rewarding to say the least. Yeah. And I should tell everybody that the name of this case is Ingham versus Johnson and Johnson. It was tried uh, in uh, June and July of 2018. So last year, and um, it involved 22 plaintiffs. Um, and essentially the claim was that uh, the Johnson Johnson's product of uh, uh, their Johnson's baby powder and shower to shower, uh, that women had used for freshness hygiene uh, on their genitals. And, um, and they all had uh, uh, been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And um, it is, from what I could tell, Rachel, the, the crux of this case really came down to whether or not there is asbestos and other cancer-causing uh, minerals that were in the talc. And that seemed to be where the fight was in this case. That is absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. Um, The biggest issue that the jury considered was whether there was asbestos in the talcum powder. And uh, prior to this case, there had been a couple of talc verdicts that had had some success um, for the plaintiffs and um, that have since, you know, been fought on the appeals uh, from, from, you know, the last couple of years. And those were 
also about ovarian cancer. Um, This case was unique in the sense that it was the first time that plaintiffs were putting forth evidence that there was asbestos in the talcum powder and that that was the cause of the ovarian cancer. There are also some mesothelioma cases, um, and there was a mesothelioma case earlier that same year where um, the allegation was that the asbestos-contaminated talcum powder was causing uh, mesothelioma. So, but this was the first ovarian cancer, and it was a big issue that the jury had to look at, and ultimately the jury found that there was, in fact, asbestos in the baby powder, and that that is what caused the ovarian cancer. Go ahead, Yvonne. Well, I was going to say, and we'll be digging into this, but I, you know, I sort of thought, especially, you know, in the field that we work in, but also sort of keeping up with what was going on and what the general public was hearing in the news, I kind of thought that I knew, um, you know, what the, in general, what the baby powder and the talc cases were about, but digging into this case and, and we'll talk about it, um, there's so much I did not know about these cases. There's so much I did not know about the asbestos angle and Johnson and Johnson and the testing or the lack thereof. Um, and the sort of, it does remind me a lot of the asbestos litigation in particular in as far as how sort of, um, we'll talk about how sort of scientific and specific and about the testing that a lot of the evidence was that the jury had to hear. But it's just, it's just this is really interesting to me because it, I thought I knew what the talc cases were about, but at least especially with this case, I kind of really didn't have an accurate picture of what it was really about. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting observation, and it makes a lot of sense because there's been a big push in the media that I don't necessarily believe is the media's fault, but I think that there are companies that have for decades, uh, part of our whole case was about the lies that have been spread by the companies that are talc companies and how they've kind of all banded together and created a, a you know cloud over the eyes of the American public and also over the government. And that's a big part of why the punitives ended up being what they were from a damages standpoint, because the jury was able to see Um, particularly at that time, a lot of documents that were protected and a lot of documents that weren't allowed to be released to the public, which of course, as a plaintiff lawyer, puts you into a whole different ethical conundrum because it it wrenches at my heart at least to know that there is knowledge that I have that the public doesn't and can't have. And then you get into that whole fight. So it doesn't surprise me. Um, Even a lot of, I took probably a dozen doctor depositions of, um, OBGYN oncologists in preparation for this case and a lot of those individuals as well uh, were were also kind of part of the misinformation and had received even even within the medical literature had had looked at studies and were relying on studies that turns out when you dig into the the protected documents of Johnson and Johnson and other companies were actually influencing that literature and those studies so that, that even the doctors rely on so it, your surprise is not surprising to me because that's that's literally what everyone is, has had to deal with in this and that you kind of have to be aware of those protected documents to know what's what's going on underneath the surface. So, um, you know, that is one thing I wanted to ask about, because it seems like <clears throat> I think before this case had been it was tried, maybe there had been four or five other cases that that um, had been tried. And, and as you said, they didn't really revolve around asbestos being in the talc, but they, they were still claiming that talc caused um, uh, caused 
ovarian cancer, but, and, and, uh, you know, I guess I'm just wondering in those cases, uh, which I'm not intimately familiar with, but in those cases, uh, they didn't have evidence of asbestos or they were just claiming that talc in and of itself would just cause ovarian cancer because they still, those cases for the uh, most part were successful, right? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. So the earlier talc trials, uh, the basis for those that were done by um, some other law firms that are phenomenal law firms, they had started to look into, there's some scientific literature that shows that talcum powder use somehow leads to a higher association of ovarian cancer. And the why behind that, I think, um, was just kind of understood to be there is something in the talc itself. It may be the talc itself, or it may be part of the constituents in the talc that are causing inflammation in women's bodies. And that inflammation is leading the cells and leading the activity within the human body to change into a way that causes ovarian cancer. And those, I think that those cases um, I think from the standpoint strategically, I think that they made those choices because of the information that they had available and because of what they had been able to look into at that time. Uh, when we started working up our tout cases, we, our firm in general does a lot of asbestos work. And I actually worked at an asbestos law firm before going to work for the family business. Right. Um, and so I had some experience in asbestos and, and Mark does as well. And when we had been analyzing our talc cases, we thought, you know, here's the thing. Talc is dirt, essentially. Talc comes from the ground. There's this myth that if something's natural, it makes it healthy because asbestos is natural. And we all know asbestos causes cancer. And so we, we started early days looking into, surely there may be a chance that there's asbestos in talcum powder because we already knew that there were certain companies like Colgate Palmolive that had an, an industrial talc that we knew had been contaminated with asbestos. And we thought, you know, here's the deal. We have sued Johnson & Johnson in, in plenty of cases to know that sometimes when they say things are a certain way, turns out when you dig into it and you look into it, they may not be that way. So there had been this story told to the public that post-1976, any asbestos, if there even was any that was in talcum powder, had somehow magically been removed, or Johnson & Johnson had found a magical way to remove asbestos from talc. And if I just kind of zoom out and, and let you know, the way that we explained this to the jury and the way we, we looked at it was, if you think about a raw piece of steak, you have the meat of the steak, and then you have fat that's kind of woven in throughout that slab of steak. That's very similar to how the talcum powder mines are. The talc is the meat, and asbestos is the fat interwoven throughout. So asbestos naturally occurs as a contaminant of talc mines. That's just kind of the way that nature works. They're both rocks. They're both not, you know, they're both dirt that's been used for industrial purposes, and talc was used for cosmetic purposes. So when we started looking into it, we started doing some very targeted discovery and some very, very targeted searching into the millions and millions and millions of pages worth of documents that had been dumped on us by Johnson & Johnson and by the talc uh, mining company, Emerus. And when we were looking into it, we started finding, turns out that 
there were a lot of positive tests for asbestos throughout the decades. The post-1976, you know, we got all the asbestos out if there was any, was a lie. And uh, we started digging more and more. So that's a long roundabout way of sort of addressing that question. And I'm sure we'll dive more into the details. But uh, we just kind of kept looking into it and turns out that our suspicions were right, that there was asbestos still in the talcum powder. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, Reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means. And they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. Yeah, and I thought the way uh, that your dad explained it in uh, in opening <clears throat> was, um, you know, just really uh, effective, uh, and and kind of going through all the different asbestos and how it works and 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 how, um, you know, you test for it. Um, and I guess you know, uh, I I didn't get a chance to read everything, but I'm I'm wondering from a from a defense standpoint, once once the fight became over asbestos. Um, was there a, was there an argument from the defense that asbestos doesn't cause ovarian cancer? Because uh, I know that that was a big argument in the in the other cases about whether or not talc could cause ovarian cancer. Um, so so did the question really become whether or not there's asbestos in the talc? Um, a great great question, and it sort of did. We we kind of likened the defense strategy to the classic dog bite case. So what it was essentially was, um, you know, your dog didn't bite me and, uh, or, you know, my, actually we'll, we'll switch it. My dog didn't bite you and it's actually not my dog. And if it was my dog and he did bite you, he didn't clamp that hard. And if he did clamp that hard, he doesn't have any teeth. And if he did have teeth, you know, you're, you're not hurt that bad. And so it, the, the defense strategy started out as we have never found asbestos in any part of our minds ever, and it's never been found in the product, and it never will be, never has, never will. Then when we started showing documents where actually there had been asbestos found, not just by us and our experts, but also by Johnson & Johnson and also by the mining companies and also by their, quote, independent labs that they had hired, all of a sudden that defense started changing and it was, well, you know, if, if asbestos ever was found in our minds, that was just industrial talc. That was never used in the baby powder. And okay, well, if asbestos was found in the baby powder, it's not the right size and shape to cause cancer. And, you know, even if it, even if there was a little bit, um, 
it's probably out by now. And that was old talc from a different type of mine. It didn't affect these ladies. There is no way to prove it wasn't something that these ladies used. So it wasn't ever morphing defense strategy and um, it ultimately didn't succeed. But, um, but I think that, that a big part of it you know, they kept trying to try it as a talc case. They wanted to try it as a talc case as much as they possibly could. And they would say talc doesn't cause cancer and they would use talc literature. Meanwhile, we were making it clear this is not a talc case. This is an asbestos case. This is asbestos in talc is causing cancer and they aren't testing adequately for it and there is no way to remove it and there's no reason to use talcum powder knowing that there's going to be asbestos in it and you can't properly get it out when you have a very safe alternative known as cornstarch and when baby powder in general isn't even medically necessary. So there were a whole bunch of different strategies that we employed um, that involved just kind of revealing the truth. And I think that I think that Johnson and Johnson has gotten to a place where they are realizing that saying there is no asbestos in the powder only works so much. And if you have the right plaintiff lawyers that are showing the right documents, that strategy has to morph. So now they've started, um, and in our case, they also did employed some experts that were industrial hygienists that said, you know, let's just assume hypothetically that you're right, that there is this amount of asbestos. And if there is, that's not enough to cause disease. That's not enough to cause cancer. Um, it's, it's, you know, just a, a low, low, low level, even if it is asbestos, which we're not saying that it is. So ultimately the jury didn't believe that. Um, but that was in fact a strategy that, that the defense tried to employ. Rachel, you mentioned a, a couple times, um, at, and I think um, it's. I think our our lawyer listeners in particular will be interested in this. Um, we, you know, you got the document dump. You got, you know, just probably millions of pages of documents. Can you talk a little bit about what your team did? Um, you know, either programs you used or systems you used to sort of. Um, work through those documents, find the things that um, you knew you wanted to use and then get it sort of focused in and cleaned up by the time you were ready to try the case. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, so there are so many different document databases out there that can be used. And I would highly encourage any lawyers that expect to get a document dump, which, which happens nine times out of 10, I'd say. Uh, and, and sometimes that's just by nature of if your requests are very broad, the defense is going to just give you everything. And um, so there, were, there are a couple of different things you can do. The most important thing I would say is you need to find a good vendor. Find a good vendor that is able to do what's known as OCRing, a PDF document. So when a document's scanned in, um, if it's if it's OCR'd, what that means basically is just that it's run through a computer in a certain way and in the database in a certain way where you can targeted you can make targeted searches for certain search terms and they'll pop up when you do. Um, and it, it does make it a lot faster than back in the days of sitting in a warehouse and going through boxes and boxes of documents, which we also did. Um, so you, there's certainly some actual physical paper you end up having to go through, but. Um, what we did here is we kind of started with the science and we worked backwards. So we looked into 
it's clear that there is this talc literature out there about whether or not talc causes ovarian cancer. And on the surface, it seems like some studies say yes, some studies say no, some studies fall kind of in the middle. And when you start searching for certain words like talc and then asbestos, asbestiform, asbest, you know, certain search terms like that, you start to, to find certain documents. And a lot of the targeted searches were about ovarian cancer. So searching for that, we were able to find, for example, um, the companies, the talc companies in general, including Johnson & Johnson, all kind of coming together. Uh, and this actually went to some of our conspiracy claims, but coming together to present information to uh, the National Toxicology Program, or NTP, that is normally putting out publications to the scientific community and to doctors and to the public. And we saw a lot of attempts in those searches um, for that literature. We saw a lot of attempts on the defense side um, of the companies trying to influence literature and trying to, um, for example, one study that's actually pretty well known and that in one of my depositions, um, one of the doctors I deposed relied on this study for his thought that he didn't think that talc causes ovarian cancer. And when you dive into that and you, we searched for those authors' names, turns out that Johnson & Johnson and the mining company Emerus hired a law firm to hire those doctors so that they could take advantage of attorney-client privilege and not have to disclose on the study that they were funding that study. So that's like a big piece of evidence, obviously. So when I showed the doctor that, I said, well, you know, would this change your opinion to know that tout companies were actually behind this study? And they specifically say in this document, let's go ahead and hire um, this law firm, I won't name them, but let's go ahead and hire this law firm so that we can take advantage of attorney-client privilege. And lo and behold, when you look at this study, it says funded by that law firm. So, you know, when, you, when we really started diving into the science, we saw that there was a lot of influence going on behind it. Um, and that helped hone and target our searches to find those types of liability documents. Got it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you must have been pretty excited to figure out that uh, that law firm sponsoring yeah. the study connection. Yes, yeah, we and we have, of course, we've tried to subpoena the law firm. We've tried to get you know more documents that we can, and then then we search the data the database for the law firm's name. And there's only so many documents we get, but um, we get you know rejected for attorney client privilege and things like that. But yeah. You got to keep trying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And it just shows how important those searches are and in, in being able to search those millions of documents because they always do a, a document dump. And, uh, and if you don't have the ability to go through all those documents, it can make it impossible. So, um, so it, it just, you know, shows how, uh, when you can find those needles in a haystack, how, um, how effective it can be at trial. Absolutely. Um, and, and was part of the evidence, if I, if, if I remember reading uh, correctly, part of the evidence was that Johnson & Johnson not only was funding studies, but they, did they also have an industry group that was essentially uh, also funding studies and lobbying uh, Congress about the safety of talc? Was, was there some evidence yes. to that? Yes, there absolutely was. So there's a group that's gone under a couple of different names over the years, but most generally they've been known as the CTFA, which stands for the Cosmetic Toiletry Fragrance Association. And 
this association is made up of the talc industry, essentially. So the talc mining companies and then certain talc groups like Johnson & Johnson, Avon, Colgate-Palmolive, um, a bunch of different groups make up this industry. And they have been behind influencing scientific literature about talc. They've been behind influencing certain and, and the individuals that are part of the talc industry and talc groups have been behind influencing uh, geological definitions for asbestos that is that is found in talc to try and basically um, try and basically redefine asbestos where it would be impossible to call something asbestos even if it is asbestos because the definitions are so convoluted. Um, so there's been a big effort that the that the CTFA and the others have been behind um, to influence all the science literature in that way. And sometimes it's successful and sometimes it's not. The, the, biggest, the biggest influence that the, that the CTFA and Johnson & Johnson and others had was this, what we keep calling the 1976 lie. So if you start diving into, especially before our case, if you start d diving into just Googling talc, asbestos, is there asbestos in talc? A lot of the articles will say, you know, there was an idea that maybe in the 70s before 1976, there might have been asbestos sometimes in talc because the two occur in nature together sometimes. But post 1976, there is no asbestos in talcum powder. Now, some people just accepted that as a fact. Our spidey senses started you know, tick, tickling a little bit. And we looked into that and turns out that post 1976 lie is in fact a lie. When you look into it, what it really is, is that in the early 1970s, uh, that's when OSHA was formed and this asbestos scare kind of came about that for very legitimate reasons. People were diseased, asbestos cases started cropping up and, and people getting um, asbestos-associated diseases like mesothelioma and other types of cancer, and OSHA was formed to make the work environment safer. As soon as OSHA was formed and they started diving into asbestos companies and, and trying to remove asbestos from products, the talc industry started freaking out a little bit because they thought, you know what, we haven't really been testing our talc for asbestos and now we know that we probably will get a you know OSHA looking at us or at least the government looking at us because talc and asbestos occur together and you know a couple of different things happened too much to go into in in a in a shorter interview but long story short what the industry decided to do is they decided to come together and put together a certain array of tests to test for asbestos in talcum powder. Now, the detection limits, asbestos that happens in talcum powder is very small. Asbestos fibers are very small. They're small enough to be able to pierce DNA. The, the fibers are tiny, tiny, cannot be seen with the naked eye, a single fiber. So when they're in your body, very small amounts can still cause a lot of damage because a small amount can actually still mean millions and millions of fibers. So. Basically, what the talc industry kind of did was they set certain tests where the detection limit of asbestos was too high. 
Um, a good example, we had a couple of different examples to explain this to the jury because it's very complicated. But one example that's, that's pretty easy to explain without the use of visuals, um, we used a lot of visuals in the trial as well. But one example is if you walk through a metal detector at an airport, you may have metal on your pants in your zipper. I may have a bobby pin in my hair. I may have like a buckle on my pants or something, but the detection limit of the metal detector is set high enough to where it's not going to go off, even though I'm, I have some little bits of metal on me. But if I have a high enough amount of metal on me, like a gun or something like that, the metal detector will go off. Similarly, the tests that were used by the CTFA and by the, the company um, Johnson & Johnson and others, the, the detection limit was set too high. So low levels of asbestos would still be in the talcum powder, but the test would say, oh, no asbestos no detected. Asbestos. None detected, none detected. And the company would say, no asbestos, zero asbestos, even though they can't actually say that. The, the best they can say is there was none detected. But it turns out there was just a low amount detected. So in 76, the companies banded together to push certain types of tests that did not have a good enough sensitivity to pick up low levels of asbestos. They pushed it through to the FDA. They ignored um, certain types of tests that would have been a lot better to detect asbestos. And because of that 1976 timeframe, when all the talc industry adopted this, these tests and that they still use today, ever since then, they've just said, well, we don't detect asbestos post 76. So there's no asbestos in there post 76. So those are the types of conspiracies that we were able to uh, figure out through those documents and, and many others. Well, and I noticed that, um, uh, one of the things that that came up in the in the opening statement and closing argument was that um, one of I think one of your experts, Dr. Longo, maybe mm -hmm. tested more. He had tested like an insane amount more of of either talc powder or had run more tests. And you can maybe um, help clarify that. Mm -hmm. But he had done more in like the work that he'd done on on this case for you all than Johnson and Johnson had ever done. Yes, that is correct. That is correct. Um, and the reason why is because, because there's this test method for talcum powder that's known as, um, it, well, it's, it's actually more of a preparation method for the talc, but it's what you, what the best way to test for these low levels of asbestos is to do what's called pre-concentrate the talc. You use what's known as a concentration method. And what that is, just to kind of simply explain as best as I can, um, if you picture talc, it has a certain weight. And what you do is you put the talc in a liquid that has the same weight as the talc. Asbestos is heavier than talc. So what happens when you do that, when you float the talc, the heavier stuff, including asbestos, sinks down to the bottom when you swirl it around in this thing known as a centrifuge. That's kind of like a picture like an ice cream cone or something. So the heavy stuff, including asbestos, sinks to the bottom. Then what you do is you, you cut off that bottom part of the cone and you just have the heavy stuff left because all the talc has floated to the top because of that liquid that kept it afloat. At that point, what our experts and, and, and I think legitimate experts looking for asbestos and talc 
will then put that smaller amount underneath a microscope. What alternatively, what the talc companies still do to this day and what is part of their battery of tests, and they say, we test so much, we test so much, um, is instead of floating the talc and then looking at what remains in using that pre-concentration method, what the company does instead, um, we, we use the idea of a, a bale of hay with the jury to explain this. Let's imagine that you have a bale of hay and, you, and there's a bunch of needles stuck in there in that haystack. What the company did, instead of plopping all that hay into water and allowing that hay to float and the needles would sink to the bottom and then you look and you count the number of needles, that's what our experts do, Instead, what the company would do is they'd walk up and they'd pinch off a little bit of hay from the corner, look at that under a microscope and say, oh, must not be any needles in the entire haystack. And then they'd pinch off a little bit more, oh, must not be any needles. So they were only testing a very, very, very small amount of talc and they weren't pre-concentrating it in advance. They weren't floating the, the hay so that the needles would sink to the bottom. That's why they wouldn't end up finding uh, asbestos. And interestingly enough, even still with their very limited basic tests, we still found positive tests for asbestos. And then what the company would do is they would send it out to a different lab or they would say retest it again, retest it again until it came back as, as a non-detect. Um, so when the companies don't use that type of, of, a, of a preparation method, they're not going to find the type of asbestos that is in the talcum powder, which is obviously a huge problem. And they, they knew that. Um, the test method is not new. It, it is a preparation method that's been known by even Johnson & Johnson experts since about the early 70s. There was one expert who found asbestos in their Vermont talc, for example, by using this concentration method. And the company said, ooh, the limitation of this method is that it might be too sensitive. Um, the company also decided not to use the concentration method because they said it wouldn't be in, quote, worldwide company interests to do so. <laughs> well, that's a um, document. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Well, and it sounds like, too, they were playing um, their, the test results that they would play word games with how they kind of phrased what the results of the testing was. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. They, that kind of goes to... Um, it kind of goes to a couple of different things, but the industry's push to kind of redefine what asbestos is and to say that if asbestos is ever found, there, there's two, the, the company likes to use geologic terms for what asbestos is and geological definitions that are based on, um, if you think about, for example, like an asbestos company that's going out to mine asbestos for commercial purposes, they're going out to asbestos mines that are all essentially asbestos. And they want to find the most asbestosy bits of asbestos as they can. You know, the longest fibers and the biggest population of fibers, the biggest bundles of fibers. So the definitions that, that a commercial asbestos company is going to use is going to be very different because the whole point is to get as much as you possibly can to mine it and then use it in your product, at least way back in the day when asbestos was still used more commercially in the U.S. So what the talc industry wants to do really, really badly and what they've tried to do and is what is sometimes successful with certain juries is 
they will try to apply those industrial geologic terms to the type of asbestos found in their talcum powder. But the problem is the type of asbestos found in their talcum powder occurs as a contaminant. It happens as a contaminant. It's not, it's not the same type of, of asbestos and in the same amounts as it would be if you just waltzed into an asbestos mine. It's a talc mine, but it has asbestos ribboned throughout it, kind of, again, like that fat interwoven and ribboned throughout a piece of steak. So the company tries to kind of play word games and definition games in that way to um, confuse and, and I think muddle a lot of the facts with the jury. Yeah, I wanted to point out one of the things I saw that uh, your dad did an opening with, um, I think he had a bottle uh, of talc with him there. And uh, one of the points when you were talking about that they, you know, would pick off a very small bit of hay and then test that, that I think one of their experts testified or admitted that it would take like 600,000 years to test one bottle of talc going at the rate they were, they were going. Is that yeah. right? Yes, that's right. With the most sensitive test that they use, it would take them that amount of time because they don't pre-concentrate it and float that talc. Um, they, they have really tried hard to stay away from that concentration method as long as they possibly can. Even at one point in time, the FDA uh, was thinking about considering a, a proposal to, to force companies to use the concentration method or to recommend it at least. The FDA can't really regulate talc and that's also an, an illusion, but the FDA doesn't regulate talc um, and can't do so. It's self-regulated. So <clears throat> because um, it's but, not a medical product, I mean, it's not right. a drug. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Cause it's one of those cosmetic products. So, um, so the FDA was considering in the 70s using or recommending a concentration method um, and proposing that. And the companies, the talc companies started freaking out and the CTFA started freaking out. And they said, we need to make sure that we recommend our method, our test methods before the FDA to prog progresses to more sophisticated methods. They didn't want the FDA using more sophisticated methods. And they also called the FDA's proposal to use a concentration method. They called it disturbing. So they, these types of documents, when you show them to a jury, I mean, when a company is saying that they care about babies, because oh, at the end of the day, this product is being used on babies and we can't lose sight of that. When a company is saying that, you think that they would do everything they possibly could to use the most sophisticated methods and to use the most sensitive methods. Not that they would shirk those methods and say, let's not use that because that's not in the worldwide company interest or let's not use that because it turns out you actually find asbestos when you do. Um, so, and if you're, you're not using the best methods, you probably just shouldn't use talcum powder in general. Um, you probably should just stick with cornstarch. So it's just, it's a shame that the company still won't ad admit, um, admit that, that this is an issue and a problem, but the reasoning why is, is, um, a lot to do with marketing and, and money as you might imagine. Right. We've talked a lot about, um, you know, so far about kind of the different um, the testing and the documents and what sort of things were going behind the scenes. One of the things that I thought was really cool that y'all did in opening was um, we've talked about the CSI effect um, on this podcast lots of times. And we talk about it in our own trials that, you know, juries are informed by stuff that they watch on TV shows like CSI and they, and the kind of evidence they expect to see and sort of the dog and, pony show that they might expect. But one of the things that I thought was cool that y'all did in opening was 
go ahead and own the CSI effect, call it, call it CSI St. Louis. And mm. it seemed like a really neat way to empower the jury to kind of dig into these issues that could be really complicated. Can you um, just speak to, you know, that decision and other things that you did to sort of keep the jury engaged in what was obviously a very, um, you know, scientifically sort of complicated issue? Yes, that's so that it's it's really interesting you ask because that was probably the biggest issue from a strategy standpoint that we considered going into this trial because we knew we had dove into these documents and into science and even to us it was confusing some of the we knew we, there's we only have you know six weeks and even less really to put on our case and explain this to a jury that you know, we've been spending years diving into this stuff and in this case, and how are we going to break that down and, and make that make sense to a jury? Um, I think that's one of the things that Mark in particular does better than, I mean, I'm obviously very biased because he's my boss and my dad, but I think he does <laughs> that better than really any lawyer that I've ever I've ever seen. Um, and, and, and many, any of the great trial lawyers that, that you guys speak with and that you talk to, I'm sure a big part of that is analog analogies and how do you communicate to a jury? So with the CSI example, it's, it's kind of cool because that was actually something that Mark came up with back in around 2003. Or, um, in the early Vioxx trials. Um, that was a theme that he has used before and that now is kind of spread in some ways, which I think is really cool, um, to use the, the concept of, of CSI because that at that time was actually one of the shows, one of the most popular shows that his jury watched. So he thought, okay, I know my jury. Knowing your jury is so incredibly important and, and you know, reading those questionnaires and, and, and looking into the jury um, and, and just knowing this person, you know, this person put on their questionnaire, they really like CSI. And pretty much every single juror at that time had put that on his trial. So he used that as, a, as um, an idea for his opening at that time. And he has used it a couple of times. But in this trial, it made a lot of sense because what we had found in the documents really, to me, honestly, I'm... I, it rises to the level of criminal behavior, in my opinion, because it is putting the lives of, of babies and American families at risk in such a blatantly obvious way. Uh, and it's, it is, juries understand the concept of when someone commits a crime, they go to prison. And in a civil case, you have to kind of explain when a company commits a crime, essentially, you can't put a company in prison. You can't lock up a company in prison. All you can do is slap a fine on them. And that's what we uh, tried to explain to the jury that you guys are criminal investigators. We want you to look at this very carefully. We want you to dive into this. Um, I think that, that, Johnson and Johnson and other defense lawyers sometimes want to paint the picture that that plaintiff lawyers don't have science on their side that that plaintiff lawyers want want the dumbest juries possible so that they can pull one over on them as if the American public is really that stupid. What we wanted, we wanted each juror to feel empowered to know that it doesn't matter where you're from 
who you are, when you look at these documents, when you look at what happened here, you're going to see what we see because it's the truth. So that was the most important thing. We had jurors from all different walks of life. We had some with graduate degrees, um, master's degrees. We had one who was a, a janitor. We had half male, half female, a very diverse group. Um, one that worked at a defense firm, one that was a taste scientist for um, DuPont. So we had a whole bunch of different jurors and each one of them came to the same exact conclusion here. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Yeah, I really like the way, uh, you know, you embrace the science. And, 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 you know, when you use the CSI analogy, it really helps when the science is on your side, which it was. And that's when you, you know, get into this really comparing the testing that you all did, you know, uh, versus what Johnson & Johnson did. I mean, it really uh, puts the science on your side and, and, and makes that very powerful for you. And then you also talked about sort of weaving in these ideas of criminal conduct, uh, which I thought, you know, um, yeah, I, I thought you all did very well in terms of motive and means and why would a company do stuff like this? And even though, you know, at the same time saying, you know, this is not a criminal case, uh, but basically putting those themes into the, uh, into the jury's uh, minds. And, um, and I really liked the way that was done. Thank you. Um, well, talk about, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, um, you had 22 plaintiffs and I wanted to talk about the decision to try those cases together. Um, you know, on the one hand, I know it can be very, um, uh, you know, sort of from an organizational standpoint, uh, difficult that you've got so many plaintiffs, but it, on the other hand, when it comes to, when you know, there's going to be a causation argument about whether or not, uh, you can get ovarian cancer, from the use of talcum powder and, and whether or not talcum powder has asbestos in it, it, it it's very helpful in that sense because, you know, the jury's going to see 22 women, all who use talcum powder, all who have ovarian cancer, um, you know, just the, the number of your plaintiffs, um, you know, is, is helpful in that respect. And so I'm, I'm just, can you just talk a little bit about the decision to try all of them together and did Johnson and Johnson oppose that or were they, uh, were they for that or, 
talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, so in general, I've found, and I'm sure many plaintiff lawyers have found that in general defense, the defense side never, ever wants to have multiple plaintiffs all together, um, kind of all on one side, making the same argument that that's something that I think most defense lawyers are kind of against. Um, that being said, it's, it's harder than you would think having a whole bunch of plaintiffs on one side and making sure that you're, you're doing your obligation as a lawyer to differentiate each case because each case is separate and different, but they also have such commonality and common issues of fact that it, it made a lot them together. And luckily, I'm, I'm glad that the, the legal system allows for that to take place because as anybody who's tried cases knows, it takes years to get your case before a jury. And, um, it, and sometimes it never even happens. Um, there, and when you're up against companies that will utilize every possible appeal remedy they can, uh, it, it makes that even harder for people to get their day in court. Um, so there are certain jurisdictions and certain places where you can you can bundle together certain groups of people and try cases, multiple cases together. And um, I think that the judges do a great job of of trying to make sure that it's a certain number that is legally allowable and a certain number that is not going to prejudice the defendants and. Uh, and so in our case, it, it made a lot of sense to have the number that we did um, all kind of bundled together. And uh, in St. Louis, for example, you can do even more than that. But we had 22 women and um, some of them, they all kind of came from different walks of life in a way, but they also had several things in common, which were that they used talcum powder for decades, specifically the talcum powder at issue Johnson and Johnson. And they used it in pretty similar ways all over their bodies or sometimes in their households, but all over their bodies day in and day out. So they were very similar in that way. And they all got ovarian cancer. So explaining that to a jury, um, was was pretty simple to be able to do from that standpoint. And we think the jury did a great job of being able to know that each plaintiff is different and they need to consider each case individually. Um, for example, they asked for photographs of each plaintiff. We had a big, big, big chart that we called our speed dating chart that um, this massive chart had a picture of each plaintiff. And when we walked through each plaintiff for a week, um, we put all the plaintiffs on and we would ask the same questions of every single plaintiff. You know, who are you? Tell the jury a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Um, let's talk about you. And we showed pictures of them and the jury really got to know these women, each and every one of them. And you could tell that uh, even after the trial, when the verdict came in, the jury was able to hug certain plaintiffs and tell certain plaintiffs, you know, I couldn't believe when I saw that picture of your dog, I loved that, you know? And so the jury was able to differentiate each and every plaintiff. And then we also walked through each and every plaintiff, the same exact questions where it was, did you use Johnson and Johnson baby powder on your body? And in what way did you use it? And where did you use it? And have you been diagnosed with ovarian cancer? What stage were you diagnosed at? And um, the jury even asked for certain medical records specific for certain plaintiffs. Like I want to see so-and-so's diagnostic report from this date. So I was really um, 
I wasn't surprised. Our jury was, was brilliant. Um, but, but they really put the work in to make sure that they knew each and every plaintiff was different, but also had these commonalities that made sense for the case to be tried together. And then, so when you were putting up the plaintiffs, I mean, and we're asking them basically the same questions, um, you know, so that the jury could compare what was, what was the defense? Were they, were they doing much of a cross on the plaintiffs? Uh, so it, it kind of dwindled after a few, um, and it kind of depended on which plaintiff, but the jury, uh, or the, the plaintiffs would be put on the stand, and then we did some spouses, too, where there were loss of consortium claims and things like that, or where the plaintiff was deceased, and we needed the husband, for example, to be able to talk about the plaintiff. Um, and the defense did a lot of a lot more cross than I thought they probably should, um, right. and that I thought was strategic. But they would get up and essentially, um, I don't know if you guys deal with this much, but there's something known as a plaintiff fact sheet hmm. that is this document that is a fact sheet that a plaintiff walks through right at the beginning of their case, and then you amend the fact sheet over time. For example, people's addresses change, or um, people remember things. Um, at a later date, maybe they got a date wrong. Like one woman put her, the wrong birth date for herself, you know, little things like that. So it's within the plaintiff's legal right to be able to, um, to be able to amend it, to add things. And that's very normal. But the defense, I think, wanted to latch on to that as if it's kind of a gotcha, like the plaintiffs are trying to, well, on this date, you swore that this was the truth. <laughs> But then on this date, six months later, you amended it because a jury doesn't know that that's part of the legal procedure. And it's kind of, a, I think it's kind of a cheap shot, to be honest, um, to do that because you can't really explain to a jury like, yeah, but like, hello, like that, that is, she moved. Like, that's why she amended it. Right. And that's not a surprise. Or like, hello, I mean, her, she had a cancer recurrence. So yeah, she updated her medical health provider. Like, that's normal. So that was kind of their strategy. And I don't, it obviously didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And then as far as the, when you were arguing for damages, were you uh, putting up specific numbers per plaintiff or sort of giving ranges or how, how did you approach the damages for the jury uh, to, for, so that they could put a value on, on what the, uh, the plaintiffs were entitled to? So we approached the damages as, as these, these women should be essentially treated the same. Um, these women, yes, they come from all different walks of life. They have certain differences, but these women should be treated the same. Um, Mark used this really, really good uh, drawing during closing where he talked about how he, Mark's known for doing things called roadmaps, where at the beginning of a, of a, a time with a witness, we all do it too. Um, like when I put a witness on, I'll use a roadmap at the beginning and you kind of walk through, this is, this is your roadmap. And for a doctor, you could say, this is going to be science road. And the first stop on the road is your qualifications. The second stop is what you did here to test for asbestos. And the third stop is what you found. And it's a way to keep things really organized for the jury and clearly communicate to them. So Mark's known for his roadmaps and, and, um, and in, in the end, he had a, a closing roadmap. And what it was, was damages. It was damages road, essentially. And, and it explained how these women were, were living their everyday lives. They had no idea that asbestos was in talc. If they did, they wouldn't have used it. Um, and they used it thinking this product was safe because it's for babies. And they walked down this road. And then all of a sudden, there was a detour. And that detour was 
being told the same exact thing for each and every one of these women, which was you have ovarian cancer. Every single one of them was hit with that horrible news. Every single one of them had to go through treatment for it. And uh, every single one of them had to tell their families. Every single one of them had to explain that they may not be around very long. And, and they had to come to terms with that diagnosis and wrestle with that. So that's how Mark presented it and how we presented it to the jury was, um, you know, the whole point of having these women together is, yeah, they're each different people, but they all went through the same, this is the same damage to each of them. Okay. Yeah. And I noticed that most of the uh, compensatory awards look like they were on average about 25 million. I think there were maybe a few that were, uh, more or less than that, but, but on average, almost all of them got about 25 million for compensatory damages. Is that right? Yep. That's right. Yeah. And that's kind of the way we argued it to be was that each one of these women deserves the same compensation. When you were, uh, when, when you were doing your voir dire and, uh, I guess, you know, maybe talk about, you know, uh, if, if you did any focus groups, what, what type of juror, were you looking for and what, how were you approaching um, doing the voir dire? We ended up, uh, we, what we wanted to do was we wanted to find people who were going to essentially have the attention span to be able to last and have the interest. That's what we really needed. Ultimately, it, it didn't have to be a certain age range. It didn't need to be, you know, we want more males or females. We need higher educated. We want this. We want that. To us, it really was just, are these people going to be willing to sit there and give our plaintiffs the time of day for six weeks and not be there kind of begrudgingly forced, you know, and only paid $12 a day, that kind of thing. So we really, our, our main focus was trying to get jurors who would really dig into the science and really dig into the evidence with us. Because ultimately, that's all you can ask is for an open mind. And, um, so we ended up, like I was kind of telling you guys earlier, with a very diverse jury, um, different races, different age groups, different education groups, um, half male, half female, all different walks of life. One of them was a financial, like a financial analyst, which normally plaintiff lawyers are terrified of having on a jury. But to us, we kind of felt like we feel like the truth is on our side. If we do our job communicating the truth, it doesn't matter what kind of juror is sitting there. They're going to believe it because it's the truth. And that's kind of the way we tried this case. There were no gotcha lawyer tricks. There wasn't, let's try and get a juror who's not going to get it and we can sort of, you know, or let, let's get a very sympathetic group where every single one of them has experienced someone with cancer. You know, it wasn't anything like that. It really was, we need people who will be willing to listen to us because this is confusing. This is, this is going to take effort and, and each juror needs and put aside any biases they have coming into it. We wanted, we wanted to be able to just explain the truth, but to get that opportunity um, to explain it thoroughly because we really felt like no matter what juror we have, as long as we're doing our jobs, they're going to see what we see. Right. And, and, and so tell me, where, do, where does the case stand now? I'm, I mean, I know you guys are probably up on appeal, right? Yes. So... Johnson and Johnson will appeal it until the cows come home, but right. we are on appeal um, for all every possible reason they can possibly think of, and um, even then some. So uh, it's it's 
it's that stage now. And we always expect that going in, you know, we advise all of our clients going in and it's really sad in, in many ways that, um, that Johnson Johnson, in my opinion, won't just kind of own up to what they've done and, and, and be responsible for what they've done. But I, I understand they have to make their own legal strategic decisions there. Um, and they have the resources to be able to appeal it um, to any court that they want to. So we're on appeal. Unfortunately, some of our women have died since, oh, no. um, since the verdict came out. And um, one, one woman, for example, Tony Roberts, she is, she was, all of our women were so incredibly strong and are so incredibly strong. Tony Roberts is somebody who I, I am not a crier and I had to put my head down so that the jury couldn't see that I was crying during her testimony. Um, she passed away, unfortunately, since the trial. And what she really wanted, though, was she wanted to be able to tell the truth and tell her story. And she told the jury that she turned to them and said, thank you for listening to me. Thank you for listening to my story. And she, uh, you know, she was bald, sitting up there, going through chemo in her last days, barely the strength to be able to walk up on the stand. Her son sitting in the, in the, in the crowd watching in her last days. And she said, you know, I, I, I know that, that I, I'm here for a reason. I'm here for a purpose. I need to get this out there and I need to tell the truth. And she was thankful even to, the, she even thanked the court reporter for putting a record on it um, and being able to get the truth out there. And, and now, you know, she would, she, her memory is, in, is encapsulated in history forever for being part of this case, although she's no longer with us. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, it's powerful for her and, you know, you, you never like to see the loss of life, but at least she was able to see the case get tried and see mm -hmm. uh, some amount of justice uh, uh, be done, even though the case is not over yet. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, I, I wanted to ask you a couple of uh, uh, things that I saw in the, uh, in the opening argument. We are at one point, um, when Mark was uh, giving the opening, he mentions disrobing in court. And I just had to, ask, I was just wondering what was he, uh, what was he doing? Can you I'm sorry, you glitched a little. Can you say that one more time? <laughs> he, he, he mentioned that he was disrobing in court. Like he was taking something off and said that that was going to be the end of it. And I'm just wondering what he was doing. <laughs> I have no idea. I, that, that is so mean, Steve. Of course, <laughs> Rachel doesn't remember that from that whole trial. I, it is very obvious from the transcript that it is the microphone that he was like taking off or something. I, tell, I thought maybe he was taking his jacket off or something. I didn't know. No, what I, think that, I think that must have been it because we, we, I think, so it kind of became a common joke because we kept passing, we kept having to pass the microphone between us and, and the other folks on the other side. And, and so it was kind of funny. We, he kept having to take his jacket off, put it on, and then we were having technical problems. So it was just, it was funny. He, he cracks jokes. He likes to keep yeah. it light. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that's the way you know, I, you know, when I talk to other lawyers about how you try cases, I mean, you know, I don't mind mistakes in front of own it and don't get him. It's human. And, and uh, exactly. at the end of the day, jurors want to see that you're a human working through this with them. Exactly. I mean, he, Mark is Mark to a T in front of everyone, including to a jury. Like there, you know, he's, he is sitting there um, at one, he, so Mark always gets sick at least once per trial. That's just something <laughs> that always happens. And so he's, you know, it, and it's funny because he's not a coffee drinker and he also is not an alcohol drinker. So he, his body isn't used to 
foreign substances to say the least. So, you know, he'll take Sudafed and then he'll, he already doesn't sleep during trial, but then he'll be up until 5 a.m. getting ready for a cross because he's hyped up on Sudafed. Right. Well, he'll sit there, you know, and, and, and use tissues and sneeze and one jurors, I think, probably got sick from him because then the next couple of days she had tissues. I think he got the judge sick, you know, but he owns it. And he's like, sorry, judge, sorry, your honor. So he's him to a T no matter what. And I think a big part of um, his appeal in the courtroom and, and to jurors in general is his authenticity. They know that what you see is what you get no matter what. Well, uh, it's a great, uh, a, a great trial, obviously fantastic job, uh, done by your team. And, um, I'm just wondering, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners about, uh, about the trial? Uh, the, uh, I'll remind everybody it was called the Ingham versus Johnson and Johnson and the Mary's, uh, case that was tried in St. Louis last year. And it was a total verdict of $4.69 billion. Is there anything else you want to make sure everybody understands about that trial? I think one of the most important things that I would like to make sure that everyone understands is don't believe every single thing that you read until you really have time to look into it because there is a lot of power and a lot of money behind the information that gets out there. Um, And it's really important to take the time to you know, even if something is a published study in a scientific journal, chances are it was funded by some company somewhere for some purpose. So I, I kind of want the, the American public to become a little more skeptical of everything, including the information they receive. Rachel, yeah. I'm so glad you said that because I still had a question for you and it's it wasn't <laughs> directly related to the trial. And this is not like it. This is not like a sort of beauty podcast, although I'd, I'd be open to that if anybody's listening. <laughs> but right. I, have to ask, I have to ask, Rachel, like I, I stuff like this and especially learning specifically the kinds of things that were happening in this case makes me terrified to use like anything like any kind of makeup like any kind of it just and you do so much more of this work than I do what do you how do you (laughs) (laughs) we're we're getting getting makeup tips now (laughs) yes do you have yes but yeah I mean I'll take any tips I can get but I mean how do you approach this knowing what you know So that's, I mean, it is such a great question. And I have to say before working on these talc cases, I didn't realize how much talc was in so many different makeups that I had that I obviously threw out. Um, But knowing that just because something says all natural doesn't make it healthy, knowing that just, just because something says pure doesn't mean it's pure because talc is all natural, so is asbestos. And Pure talc doesn't mean anything, doesn't mean it's pure, doesn't mean it's clean. Um, Diving into that's very helpful. I've actually found that there are a lot of bloggers and Instagram accounts, for example, that um, really do their homework on what types of makeups are good. Um, But I think also in, in general, I think not believing the marketing messages that are being pushed by companies is really important. Um, Our women use the powder because they were kind of shamed into doing so and shamed into thinking if my body looks or smells a certain way. Um, 
that means that I am not worthy of love or, or affection. And I think that companies capitalize on shame as a marketing tool to be able to push products because as long as you feel inadequate, you're always going to want to buy more. So I think a lot of it starts kind of psychologically accepting and loving yourself as the natural, you know, smelly, hairy person that each one of us is. <laughs> um, but it, it, I am a girly girl and I do wear makeup. So <laughs> I, I like looking into to certain bloggers that I can tell have done their homework by, by the amount of work and effort that they put into, um, to looking into these things. Um, don't, and don't use deodorant with aluminum in it. <laughs> I'll just throw right, that. Right. <laughs> I, I cut that out recently. That's been an experience, but <laughs> yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll spare everyone the details. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, I was just thinking as you were saying this, I mean, I think one of the prejudices you have to overcome in handling these cases, I'm sure the average person who doesn't know anything about this is like, well, you know, how could talc be dangerous? I mean, you use it on babies. So, uh, you know, I, but that's the whole point that it, that it is dangerous, but um, yes, that's part exactly. of the, the, your great work as a, as a trial lawyer and the great work you all did. Yes. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's part of the strategy. There is a PowerPoint that Johnson Johnson's marketing team put together that said, you know, trust is our number one product. If they can sell trust to the American public, they can sell anything. Baby powder itself doesn't actually make that much money for them anymore. But the reason why they're so, they're so brought on, you know, fighting tooth and nail is because baby powder represents trust and that sells every other product that they have. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I think you, even you had some documents where they refer to it as their sacred cow. Yes. Yep. They refer to it as their sacred cow. Um, they they have a bunch of kind of nicknames for it, but it 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 all goes to that concept of if it's baby powder or bust for them. If they don't, if they're not able to be the baby company that everybody trusts, company, um, then they're not able to sell this. Because people go to the store and they think, oh, it's Johnson & Johnson. That's the baby powder company. Like, I can trust this product. And that's how they make, that's how they make their money. Yeah. I am so glad that I'm recording this one from home because I'm going into my bathroom right now. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> really, like, throwing some stuff away. <laughs> I think that that is a good idea. One of our, one of the witnesses, um, actually worked at Johnson and Johnson. And we, we were, we really didn't want the defense witnesses to get up and be able to say, your honor, I've used talc my whole life and I don't have cancer. I'm totally fine. Um, so talc doesn't cause cancer. Cause we thought judge, that's not fair. But the judge calls balls and strikes and he said, well, tough, you can cross examine on that then, you know, yeah. I'm going to let them say that. And if you want to cross them, you can. So I'll just tell you guys briefly. Um, one of the company witnesses from the Johnson and Johnson company. I won't name her, but she went on and on about how her whole life, her mom used talcum powder. She had talc in her cupboards. She used talcum powder. Nothing bad ever happened. And Mark got up and he said, well, you know, you said you used talc your whole life and your mom used it and you always had it in your house and you never threw it away and, and that you think it's safe. You know, is that true? And she said, yes. And he said, okay, well, I hope your mom's in good health. And she said, well, thank you. My mom is actually um, deceased. And he said, oh, um, well, if you don't mind me asking, what did she die from? And the witness said, ovarian cancer. You're oh, kidding God. me. <laughs> Dead serious. What? And there was an audible gasp in the courtroom. <laughs> oh and you could goodness. tell at the break, everyone was sprinting out, calling their loved ones, saying, get rid of that talcum powder in the household. Get rid of it. 
Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I can't believe that she would even bring that up. Oh my I know. It was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. Wow. But yeah, you know, it's funny because we do a lot of uh, auto products cases. So you're always going to get the uh, corporate representatives come in and talk about how long they've driven their vehicles all their lives, never had any problems with it. It's it's something you got to face in these cases. But uh, man, yeah, you can't, uh, that, that testimony is so powerful when, when somebody makes an admission like that. Oh yeah. It, it was, it just, it spoke for itself. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Wow. Well, well, uh, great work. Obviously, uh, as always from the Lanier Law Firm, you guys have been uh, knocking it out of the park for a long time and I hope you continue to. And um, we really appreciate uh, having Rachel Lanier on the uh, podcast. And I just want to remind everybody, if you want to look up Rachel, uh, you can look her up at LanierLawFirm.com. They are uh, based in Houston with offices in New York, Los Angeles and Oklahoma City. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciated being on here. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. (laughs) We only need uh, positive commentary. We're fragile. Um, You can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time, and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>